Before our episode begins today, I just want to take a moment to let all of our audience members know that I have launched a YouTube channel. It is titled Trevor Travels. You can find the link to the channel on the description of all of our podcast episodes. The channel is going to be a mixture of travel and of history content. Like I know anybody listening to this podcast loves historical content, so there will be plenty of that. One of the fir- or the very first video put out is a video of my brother and sometimes co-host Brendan and I climbing a castle in Chativa, Spain near Valencia. Tons of history about the castle and scenic views. It's also going to be about travel and just different cultural things I experienced during my travels. For example, I put out the second video the day after the first video that showed one of the Easter processions here in Valencia, Spain. In these processions, they carry giant floats of Jesus on the cross. There is a band playing very intense music and people wearing very, well, if you're from the United States, it seems like strange robes, but there's a history to it. So it's going to be a great YouTube channel. I have more content filmed from around Europe than I possibly know what to do with right now. I'm a very slow editor, so I'm probably going to be looking for a partner to help me edit these videos and, and teach me the ropes and you know, just somebody to work with that can help me edit these as I film them and host them and do everything else that's involved. But go ahead and check out the YouTube channel. It is a great visual complement to the March of History, which is obviously an audio format, and I think you'll enjoy it. This is episode 47 of the March of History. I am back from my adventure beyond the Rhine. Like Caesar, I looked high and I looked low for Germanic barbarians, but try as I might, I couldn't find a single barbarian. Actually, maybe that's not 100% true. I did see a number of barbarians at the Hofbrau House in Munich, drinking heavily, banging on tables, singing songs, and breaking the occasional beer stein. And if you don't know about Hofbrau House, it was at one point the Royal Brewery of Bavaria and was even frequented by the likes of Mozart, who was said to have lived around the corner from the famous beer hall. And supposedly, Mozart even wrote one of his operas after several beers from Hofbrau House. Now, I don't know if their beers are going to help you write operas, but Hofbrau does have some wonderful beer. So if you are ever in Munich, I highly recommend you visiting it. Though I will say, later in its history, Hofbrau House was host to a number of dark events in history. Hofbrau House is where Adolf Hitler essentially launched the Nazi party and laid out his 25 points for the party in a speech to a a crowded beer hall. Of course, as you might imagine, not everyone liked the speech, and a huge fight broke out between the now-named Nazis, their mortal enemy, the communists, and the social democrats, a three-way fight with beer steins flying, tables being smashed, fists being thrown. Eventually, the Nazi thugs won the fight, and Hitler finished the speech, and you know the rest is unfortunate history. And I actually tried a number of times while I was at Hofbrau House to try to get up into this room. As I understood it from a guide that I took a tour from, this 
whole event happened in the top story of Hofbrau House, kind of a meeting room. And I tried to get up there a number of times just because I'm always somebody that wants to see where the history took place. And you can read about it as much as you like in books and learn about it in documentaries, but sometimes seeing the actual area allows you to learn so much more. Unfortunately for me, it was locked. One time, uh, the, the Rotary Club of Munich was meeting there, so I couldn't get in for that reason. But all of my experience in Hofbrau House and trying to get up to that third floor or, or whatever the top floor is of Hofbrau House, I did film for both our Instagram channel and for the YouTube channel to help our audience that can always travel. I know it's difficult to travel, especially during pandemic, to see these areas with their own eyes. And like I said, to sometimes seeing is believing or seeing is understanding. It helps you learn from a different perspective. So go ahead to check out our Instagram channel if you haven't already. It's at the March of History. The YouTube is Trevor Travels. There's a number of YouTube accounts called Trevor Travels. So it's probably best just to go to the link in the description of each podcast episode. And not all the history on there is dark Nazi history. There is lots of other history about Germany, about the Holy Roman Empire at Nuremberg, about Spain and Italy, and basically everywhere I've been to, you can find on the Instagram channel and YouTube. Slowly, those same videos will be coming out over time in probably a longer format. And of course, since I went to Nuremberg, I went to the where the Nuremberg trials happened, where the Nazis were held to account for their atrocities. That's you can see on the Instagram channel as well, the courthouse there, and also the Nuremberg rally grounds where the Nazi propaganda films such as Triumph of the Will were filmed. Now, with all that said, let's get back to the life of Julius Caesar and to the planned invasion of Britannia. We left off in our last episode with Caesar gathering ships for an invasion or really you might call a reconnaissance in force of Britannia. Caesar's gotten together just shy of 100 transport vessels for his troops. 80 of these vessels have arrived at the designated port already and are ready to sail. And these vessels would carry both the 7th Legion and Caesar's favorite, the 10th Legion, the short distance from Calais in modern France to roughly modern Dover in Britain. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy estimates that the legions would have had about 4,000 men each, so understrength, which makes sense, they've been fighting. You know, you have casualties when you're fighting, so your legions are never at full strength. So on average, each of these ships would have held about 100 men. Now, in addition to these 80 transport vessels for the two legions, there are 18 more vessels that have not arrived yet at the port. These 18 transport ships are being held up down the coast from where Caesar is by unfavorable winds. They're about seven miles away from the rest of the fleet. And to round all this out and to give some added protection to Caesar's troops and to the transport vessels, the fleet has an unspecified number of warships or war galleys that Caesar has gathered. These war galleys Caesar has divided up between his officers to allow them to better command the transport vessels and to better protect the transport vessels. And as far as baggage and supplies, historian Adrian Goldsworthy says that Caesar brought very little. Instead, the legions, their plan is to rely on there being ripe crops in the field of Britannia that they can live off of, essentially stealing it or hopefully buying it from the locals. But, you know, I always wonder how favorable the trade deal is when an army shows up on your border and offers to buy your crops. If they're offering at all, they might just be taking them. 
But as always with this, Caesar is gambling, right? He's a gambler of the highest order. He's going to show up in Britannia with very little baggage and very little food and just hope to live off the land. That could be disastrous. I mean, I think about people who pack 20 pairs of underwear for a five-day trip, and then I think you know Caesar's sending an entire army to a land that's supposed to be mythical, and he really hasn't packed much food for them. This guy is pretty wild in, in the way that he just plunges ahead and hopes for speed and surprise to be his best friends rather than preparation. Now, at some point, all the preparations for these ships are complete and the soldiers are loaded onto them, but already there's an issue. Sea-to-land invasions are always, throughout history, fraught with unexpected difficulties, and of course, this was no different in ancient times. And in this case, the first issue Caesar faces is that the 18 ships that were held back by the weather still haven't arrived. But Caesar's never a man who likes to wait around and, and wait for events to catch up to his speed. As we've seen in previous episodes, Caesar often sees, like I said, speed as his most effective weapon, even more effective than thorough preparation, which is, it almost seems to be breaking one of the rules of war, that you need to be thoroughly prepared, but in Caesar's mind, speed is the best ally that sometimes thorough preparation can get in the way of speed, and in that case, you're better to take your enemy by surprise than to be thoroughly prepared. So rather than waiting for the last of the 18 transport vessels to arrive with the rest of the fleet, Caesar orders his cavalry to head to a port near to the 18 missing transport vessels and to just embark in that port that's already near the vessels. And historian Adrian Goldsworthy estimates that there were probably several hundred of the cavalry along with their mounts as well. Meanwhile, Caesar says that the rest of the fleet suddenly had a spell of good weather and Caesar decided to just take advantage of this good weather. Again, speed is his best ally, and he orders the fleet to set sail before dawn in late August of 55 BCE. And he gives the cavalry orders to follow up behind them whenever weather allows. So off the Roman fleet goes without their cavalry, and it's a very short trip. So the, the leading elements of Caesar's fleet arrive by early to late morning. I've, I've read two different books that gave two different estimates. But whether it's early morning or late morning is, is not that important to the story. They arrive near modern Dover, and if you know Dover, if you've seen pictures of Dover, then you know that the Roman fleet arriving there is in for a shock. The coastline of Dover is an 8-mile or 13-kilometer stretch of chalky white cliffs reaching up as high as 350 feet above the ocean. These cliffs are an imposing natural fortress that guards Britain at its closest point to continental Europe. And if you've never been to Dover, which I haven't either, or if you've never seen a picture of Dover, I encourage you to pull one up. Actually, you can go to the March of History's Instagram page by the time this episode comes out, actually the, the Facebook as well, I will have posted a series of pictures of the Cliff of Dover on the, both the Instagram and the Facebook page of the March of History, so you can easily see it that way. Now, I think the Cliffs of Dover are fascinating within the story of Julius Caesar because they are one of the few locations that Caesar saw and was at and have changed relatively little since his time. You know, from the millennia ago that Caesar existed to now, the Cliffs of Dover probably don't look so different. In other words, if you were to go out on a boat and either motor or sail out a, a short distance from the cliffs and look back at the cliffs, maybe motor your boat towards the cliffs, 
you would suddenly see a site that 2,079 years ago, Julius Caesar and his legionaries saw sailing across the Medi- sailing across the English Channel and towards the cliffs of Dover, greeted by that impressive sight. And I can think we can all agree that this probably left a huge impression on Caesar and his soldiers seeing these chalky white cliffs like that. But I think that this is amazing, the fact that these cliffs, because of the natural formation that they are, you know, and much of the terrain that Caesar would have seen has changed so much. If it was forested, the trees have been chopped down. If it was natural, houses have been built. But because the cliffs of Dover have not been developed, there's no big mansions on the sides of cliffs like you see in California. And because of this, they're very similar to the way Caesar would have seen them. And I, I think it's a remarkable thing. Now, as Caesar approached these white cliffs of Dover, not only was he greeted by the imposing cliffs that guarded the coast he was hoping to land on, but also by armed Britons atop these white cliffs waiting for him and prepared for war. As Caesar and the Romans get closer and closer to these cliffs, they can see an army of Britons lining the cliffs of Dover waiting for the Romans to try to land. The Britons knew Caesar was coming and had gathered infantry and cavalry and chariots all along the cliffs. This was a show of force by the Britons. They were letting Caesar know that they were ready and able to resist him and the Romans and had no intention of allowing him onto their island without a fight. Author Tom Holland says of this event, quote, It was indeed to prove a journey back in time. Waiting for the invaders on the Kentish cliffs was a scene straight out of legend. Warriors careering up and down in chariots, just as Hector and Achilles had done on the plain of Troy. End quote. What a fascinating idea. This idea that the Romans would have thought they went back in time when they see these British warriors driving around chariots, like something out of the Iliad. And why not? This was supposed to be a mythical island anyway. The Romans may have felt that they had really left the real world and entered into a true land of myths. I mean, Britain's supposed to be a mythical land, and next thing you know, you see people driving chariots, which to them would have seen incredibly old-fashioned and straight out of some kind of Homeric tale. Now, in the commentaries, Caesar says, had the Romans landed by these cliffs, it would have been easy for the Britons to cast missiles, meaning arrows, spears, and rocks, from the cliff tops and hit their target below, namely the Romans would be the target. And in Caesar's words, he judged this place, quote, wholly unsuitable for disembarkation, end quote, <laughs> which I think is like an understatement of the campaign right there. The cliffs of Dover are unsuitable for disembarkation. <laughs> So Caesar and the rest of the ships that had made it there already with him dropped their anchor and waited a safe distance, I might add, from the cliffs and the dangerous Britons on top of them and waited for the rest of his fleet to arrive. Because even though Caesar had arrived at the cliffs already, much of his fleet was still strung out behind him. Caesar had to sit there for most of the day and wait until early afternoon when finally most of his forces had arrived and concentrated around him in one area. It would seem Caesar had underestimated the English Channel and how tricky it can be to navigate and to sail through, and this will not be the last time this happens to Caesar. Now, in the commentaries, Caesar doesn't make this exactly clear, but historian Adrian Goldsworthy thinks it's possible that the natural haven at Dover, which I think is where the town is today, was where Caesar's original planned landing destination was. This would have been scouted out by his officer Volusinus ahead of time, but 
Now, with crowds of Britons waiting on the surrounding cliffs, Caesar has to think on the fly. The day is getting on at this point, and the Romans haven't even begun to land, but Caesar doesn't panic. Instead, he summons all of his legates and military tribunes to a meeting aboard his flagship. There he lays out his plan to them, and he also gives them strict instructions that he, quote, required them to carry out all their tasks at a nod and at the right moment, end quote. At a nod and at the right moment. This is a great lesson in communication from Caesar here. He takes the time to have this council, even as his fleet sits off the cliffs of Dover with British barbarians, as Caesar calls them, looking on, because he wants to make sure that everyone is aware of the plan and is on the same page. Caesar then sends all the legates and tribunes back to their ships and orders his fleet to weigh anchor, and the fleet begins to sail along the British coast to find a landing area not blocked by barbarians and covered in cliffs. But the Britons... They're not stupid. They figure out pretty quickly that the Roman intention was to find a landing area where they weren't, so they begin to follow the Roman fleet and shadow them on land. I get this image in my head of this Roman fleet just sailing along the cliffs and watching. You can can look from this fleet up onto the cliffs and watch these chariots and horsemen and people on foot all following along the cliffs, just shadowing the fleet. But Caesar's luck strikes again, and favorable winds and favorable currents push the Roman fleet too quickly for the infantry of the Britons to follow, and soon only the British cavalry and chariots can keep up with the fleet. The Roman fleet sails a total of seven miles up the coast of Britain, guided by Caesar's legate Volusinus, until they arrive at a landing site that historian Adrian Goldsworthy says is near to Deal or Walmer. Here they find a landing site with a wide beach and no cliffs, but it would be a contested landing by the British cavalry and chariots. But fortunately for the Romans, Caesar's plan had worked, and the British infantry had been left in the dust. But the Romans weren't out of the woods yet. What comes next is a sort of ancient, reverse version of D-Day. D-Day, of course, I don't have to tell you guys, is the Allied invasion of France during World War II from Britain. It was the largest seaborne invasion in history. And here Caesar and the Romans have sailed from modern France to invade what is modern Britain. Of course, Caesar's force is a fraction of the size of the Allied forces on D-Day, and they lack any of the technology the Allies had, but even still, even with all those differences, they face some of the same problems that the Allies had. Tragically, some of the Allied landing craft in 1944 dropped their soldiers into deep water because either they couldn't get any closer to the beaches or the captains were afraid of the enemy fire and didn't want to kill themselves, so they told their troops to get out too early. And what happened is that many of these soldiers drowned because they were weighed down by their heavy bags, by all the equipment that they had, and they never even made it to the beaches. They just drowned. Caesar and the Romans have similar issues. Caesar says in the commentaries, quote, They, meaning the Britons, followed on with the rest of their forces and prevented our men from disembarking. This led to extreme difficulties because the ships were too large to be beached, except in deep water, while the soldiers, he means the Roman soldiers, he continues, the soldiers, ignorant of the land, their hands full, weighed down by the size and the weight of their weapons, at one and the same time had to jump down from the ships, find their feet in the surf, and fight the enemy. 
The Britons, on the other hand, were either on dry ground or in shallow water, their limbs unencumbered, the ground very familiar. They cast missiles boldly and spurred on their horses, which were well used to such work. This led to panic among our men, who were wholly unaccustomed to this style of fighting, and thus did not display the same eagerness and enthusiasm as they habitually did in infantry engagements." End quote. What Caesar is saying there is that just like the Allied soldiers on D-Day, the Romans had to jump out of their transport vessels in too deep of water. It's for different reasons. In this case, Caesar says that the Roman ships just couldn't go any shallower without being run aground, and so the Roman soldiers had to jump off in deep water. But even still, it's fascinating the connection between these two very different periods separated by two millennia. And you can really put yourself in the shoes of these Roman legionaries, jumping out of these boats and, and who knows how high the water is, chest deep, neck deep, you have big waves crashing around you and on you. As that's happening, spears and arrows and rocks are being hurled your way. This is a chaotic situation, and because of this, the Romans are panicking. They're not used to fighting like this. These are hardened legionaries that keep their head in the heat of even the most bloody of battles, but as I think Caesar even says at one point in one of his quotes that men fear most the unknown, and, and this is unknown to the legionaries. They're not expecting this. They haven't trained for this. They've never experienced anything like this, so they are panicking. Now, Caesar is watching all of this from his flagship, and he knows something has to be done to help his troops land. So he orders the warships in his fleet to protect the disembarking legions and scare the Britons. And Caesar says of this in the commentaries, quote, When Caesar observed this, he gave orders for the warships, which were of a type less familiar to the barbarians and more maneuverable at need, to be moved a short distance from the transport vessels, rode at speed, and halted on the enemy's exposed flank. From there, the enemy could be repelled and driven off with slings, arrows, and artillery machines. End quote. And Caesar says that this works. The barbarians, as he calls them, the Britons, were frightened and thrown into a panic by the appearance of the ships, the movement of the oars, and the unfamiliar machines, or, or the siege engines. Apparently, the Britons had never seen oared ships like the ones used in the Mediterranean, and all these oars flying about and rowing confused them and frightened them for a moment. And after this, the Britons retreat a short distance from the Roman ships. But despite this success and the fact that the Britons have been pushed back, the Romans are still hesitating because of how deep the water is. And as both the Britons and the Romans hesitate, and the balance of this battle is at stake, one man steps up. And this time, it isn't Caesar. It's the man who carries the eagle for the 10th legion. Now, Caesar doesn't mention him by name, but the whole army would have known who this man was. Adrian Goldsworthy says that likely the man would have been of too low station to bother mentioning in the commentaries, but Caesar just mentions him as the man who carried the eagle for the 10th. And Caesar tells this story in the commentaries, and it's actually the first use of direct speech in the commentaries, the first time Caesar actually quotes someone else. Caesar says, quote, Meanwhile, our soldiers were hesitating, chiefly because the sea was so deep. Then, the man who carried the eagle of the 10th legion appealed to the gods to see that his action turned out well for the legion and said, quote, Jump down, soldiers, unless you want to betray our eagle to the enemy. I at least shall have done my duty to the Republic and to my commander. 
End quote. And then Caesar continues, He cried these words in a loud voice, then flung himself away from the ship and began to carry the eagle towards the enemy. Then our men urged each other to prevent such a disgrace and all together jumped down from the ship. When the men who were on the closest nearby ships saw them do this, they followed them and drew close to the enemy. End quote. Keeping a Roman eagle in the hands of the Romans, in the hands of legionaries, was a thing of great honor and prestige and dignitas to the Roman soldiers. And losing their eagle to the enemy would be the most unbelievable embarrassment, dishonor is a, is a much better word, the most unbelievable dishonor to the soldiers. So this man with the eagle says, nobody's moving, I need to do something to get our troops moving, and he just jumps into the water and walks towards the enemy and basically says to the rest of the troops, hey, if you want to stop your eagle from falling in the hands of the enemy, you better follow me and fight the enemy. And the soldiers see this happening, they don't want to be disgraced this way, so they jump in and follow him, and this one man gets all of them moving. Now, as the legionaries advance, they begin to clash with the Britons. Caesar says that both sides fought fiercely. But the Romans, who are still in the surf, struggled to keep their ranks and to get a firm foothold, Caesar says. Much like in the ambush the Romans faced with Caesar in fighting the Belgae at the Battle of Sabus, where Caesar had to pick up a shield and join his legionaries on the front lines, the Roman soldiers at this battle aren't able to follow their standards as they typically do, and because of this, they can't get into the ranks they normally stand in. Instead, they are required by this chaotic situation to join up with whatever standard is nearest to them. The Britons, meanwhile, know this terrain like only a people who live there can. Caesar says of this in the commentaries, quote, the enemy, however, knew all the shallows, so when they caught sight from the shore of some of our men disembarking one by one, they spurred their horses on and attacked while our men were still at a disadvantage, their many surrounding our few. Some began throwing weapons against a whole group of our men on their exposed side, end quote. And the exposed side of the Roman legions was always their right side, where they had a sword but not a shield, so the Britons are getting around them with horses, because it's cavalry forces, and throwing spears at whole groups of Romans on their right side. They are grouping up when they see a lone Roman soldier wading through the water and surrounding him. It is not looking good for the Romans. But Caesar, ever the watchful protector of his legionaries, sees this and decides to do something about it. In the commentaries, Caesar says, quote, when Caesar noticed this, he gave orders for the boats of the warships and likewise the scout ships to be filled with soldiers. Wherever he saw men struggling, there he dispatched assistance. As soon as our men stood on dry ground, closely followed by all their comrades, they charged the enemy and routed them. End quote. But as we discussed in past episodes of the March of History, one of the most essential parts of winning a battle in the ancient world is following up on the victory by pursuing the enemy. And that's probably true of the modern world as well. But in this case, Caesar doesn't do that. And he doesn't do this because he can't. And he can't because he has no cavalry. The cavalry have still not arrived. But in this case, it isn't the end of the world since it isn't a large-scale battle. Caesar's not too worried, but he's not able to follow up the victory by chasing down the Britons. 
And that is where we will end our episode today with Caesar and the Romans having forced a beachhead on Britain and chased the defending Britons off the beach. In our next episode, we will see what Britannia has in store for Caesar and his legionaries. But don't go yet. I do have an important announcement. After two years of being away from the U.S. and living in Spain, I have finally decided it is time for me to return to the good old U.S. of A. and get back to New Jersey, where I was born and raised. It has been an amazing privilege to live here in Spain and to explore all this history and share it with you guys. But I have many relatives I haven't seen in two years. Some I haven't seen at all because they've been born recently. So it is time for me to head back to the U.S., That being said, the Spanish school year, for me at least, ends at the end of May. I then have a lease for a few months in Europe with no job, so I think it would be stupid of me not to utilize this time to do some traveling in Europe and to learn some more about European history while I'm here before I head back to the U.S. So with that in mind, I'm going to take a small break from the podcast to do some traveling I'm going to be filming a lot for the YouTube channel and for the March of History's Instagram page. I'm going to travel around Spain to Ireland to Eastern Europe. So if you want to follow these travels and learn some about the history of these areas, you can follow me at the March of History uh, is the Instagram or just search the March of History on Facebook. And I'm going to be sharing a lot about these local areas, about their history and just cool, unique facts about them. My travels will take me through to July, and also there's a lot of work involved. I need to pack up this entire apartment. I need to bring all my stuff back to New Jersey and, and you know unpack it and, and reestablish my studio. So because of all that, I'm probably not going to get another episode out until maybe August. So I apologize for the break. I know it's not what you guys want to hear, but I will say this on a positive note, that when I travel throughout Europe, when I travel and see all these historical locations, it helps me to learn a lot about European history. And that helps to enrich the podcast. It helps me to have a broader knowledge of history. And so in the end, you, the audience, benefit from having a more knowledgeable host. With all that in mind, let's keep in touch on the March of History's Instagram page, and I will talk to you in August.